Hey, what's up, girl? I'm ready. Alright. Yep. So this one is called uh, Dissertation Concerning the Nature of Virtue by Jonathan Edwards. Want to check it out? Who's the author? Jonathan Edwards. Hmm. Okay, let's do it. Concerning the nature of true virtue. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. A Dissertation Concerning the Nature of True Virtue by Jonathan Edwards. Chapter 1. Whatever controversies and variety of opinions there are about the nature of virtue, yet all, excepting some skeptics who deny any real difference between virtue and vice, mean by it something beautiful, or rather some kind of beauty or excellency. It is not all beauty that is called virtue, for instance not the beauty of a building, of a flower, or of the rainbow, but some beauty belonging to beings that have perception and will. It is not all beauty of mankind that is called virtue. For instance, not the external beauty of the countenance, or shape, gracefulness of motion, or harmony of voice, but it is a beauty that has its original seat in the mind. But yet, perhaps, not everything that may be called a beauty of mind is properly called virtue. There is a beauty of understanding and speculation. There is something in the ideas and conceptions of great philosophers and statesmen that may be called beautiful, which is a different thing from what is most commonly meant by virtue. But virtue is the beauty of those qualities and acts of the mind that are of a moral nature, that is, such as are attended with desert or worthiness of praise or blame. Things of this, it is generally agreed, so far as I know, are not anything belonging merely to speculation, but to the disposition and will, or, to use a general word, I suppose commonly well understood, to the heart. Therefore, I suppose, I shall not depart from the common opinion when I say that virtue... Hey, this is the same Jonathan Edwards that's famous for that sermon Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Do you know whether it's the same yeah, Jonathan I Edwards? I don't know. Why, do I get some here? No. It's just it's, it's very controversial. You know, the assumption that God is an angry God. What, what do you think of the idea of, yeah, well, why, why don't you like that idea? I see no evidence of an angry God. Yeah, what about the idea of virtue? What do you think of the idea of virtue and stuff? I don't know yet. Uh, we'll have to see as he spells it out. Virtue is the beauty of the qualities and exercises of the heart. Or those but what's your, what's your definition of virtue?
because I suppose it will generally be allowed that there is a distinction to be made between some things which are truly virtuous and others which only seem to be virtuous through a partial and imperfect view of things. That some actions and dispositions appear beautiful if considered partially and superficially or with regard to some things belonging to them and in some of their circumstances and tendencies which would appear otherwise in a more extensive and comprehensive view wherein they are seen clearly in their whole nature and the extent of their connections in the universality of things there is a general and a particular beauty by a particular beauty i mean that by which a thing appears beautiful when considered only with regard to its connection with and tendency to some particular things within a limited and as it were a private sphere and a general beauty is that by which a thing appears beautiful when viewed most perfectly comprehensively and universally it does with regard to all its tendencies and its connections with everything it stands related to the former may be without and against the latter as a few notes in a tune taken only by themselves and in their relation to one another may be harmonious which when considered with respect to all the notes in the tune or the entire series of sounds they are connected with may be very discordant and disagreeable of which more afterwards that only therefore is what i mean by true virtue which is that belonging to the heart of an intelligent being that is beautiful by a general beauty or beautiful in a comprehensive view as it is in itself and as related to everything that it stands in connection with and therefore when we are inquiring concerning the nature of true virtue that is wherein this true and general beauty of the heart does most essentially consist this is my answer to the inquiry true virtue most essentially consists in benevolence to being in general or perhaps to speak more accurately it is that consent propensity and union of heart to being in general hey does no i guess that's kind of validating my under my stumbling definition of virtue something that's that's uh, validated by its consequences existentially validated validated in existence is immediately exercised in a general goodwill the things which were before observed of the nature of true virtue naturally lead us to such a notion of it if it has its seat in the heart and is the general goodness and beauty of the disposition and exercise of that in the most comprehensive view considered with regard to its universal tendency and as related to everything that it stands in connection with what can it consist in but a consent and goodwill to being in general beauty does not consist in discord and dissent but in consent and agreement and if every intelligent being is some way related to being in general and is a part of the universal system of existence and so stands in connection with the whole what can its general and true beauty be but its union and consent with a great whole if any such thing can be supposed as an union of heart to some particular being or number of beings disposing it to benevolence to a private circle or system of beings which are but a small part of the whole not implying a tendency to an union with a great system and not at all inconsistent with enmity towards being in general it does no this i suppose not to be of the nature of true virtue although it may in some respects be good and may appear beautiful in a confined and contracted view of things but of this more afterwards it is abundantly plain by the holy scriptures and generally allowed not only by christian divines but by the more considerable deists that virtue most essentially consists in love and i suppose it is owned by the most considerable writers to consist in general love of benevolence or kind affection though it seems to me the meaning of some in this affair is not sufficiently explained which perhaps occasions some error or confusion in discourses on this subject
When I say true virtue consists in love to being in general, I shall not be likely to be understood. That no one act of the mind or exercise of love is of the nature of true virtue, but what has being in general, or the great system of universal existence. Who does? With direct and immediate object. So that no exercise of love or kind affection to any one particular being, that is but a small part of this whole, has anything of the nature of true virtue. But that the nature of true virtue consists in a disposition to benevolence towards being in general, though from such a disposition may arise exercises of love to particular beings, as objects are presented and occasions arise. No wonder that he who is of a generally benevolent disposition should be more disposed than another to have his heart moved with benevolent affection to particular persons whom he is acquainted and conversant with, and from whom arise the greatest and most frequent occasions for exciting his benevolent temper. But my meaning is that no affections towards particular persons or beings are of the nature of true virtue, but such as arise from a generally benevolent temper or from that habit or frame of mind wherein consists a disposition to love being in general. And perhaps it is needless for me to give notice to my readers that when I speak of an intelligent being's having a heart united and benevolently disposed to being in general, I thereby mean intelligent being in general, not inanimate things or beings that have no perception or will, which are not properly capable objects of benevolence. Love is commonly distinguished into love of benevolence and love of complacence. Love of benevolence is that affection or propensity of the heart to any being which causes it to incline to its well-being or disposes it to desire and take pleasure in its happiness. And if I mistake not, tis agreeable to the common opinion that beauty in the object is not always the ground of this propensity, but that there may be such a thing as benevolence, or a disposition to the welfare of those that are not considered as beautiful, unless mere existence be accounted a beauty. And benevolence or goodness in the divine being is generally supposed not only to be prior to the beauty of many of its objects, but to their existence, so as to be the ground both of their existence and their beauty, rather than they the foundation of God's benevolence, as tis supposed that it is God's goodness which moved him to give them both being and beauty, so that if all virtue... Hey guys. Is he making a distinction between uh, a benevolent disposition, disposition toward a specific relationship or a benevolent disposition toward being in general? primarily consists in that affection of heart to being which is exercised in benevolence or an inclination to its good then god's virtue is so extended as to include a propensity not only to being actually existing and actually beautiful but to possible being so as to incline him to give being beauty and happiness but not now to insist particularly on this what i would have observed at present is that it must be allowed benevolence doth not necessarily presuppose beauty in its object what is commonly called love of complacence presupposes beauty, for it is no other than delight in beauty, or complacence in the person or being beloved for his beauty. If virtue be the beauty of an intelligent being, and virtue can... Any does? No. ...consists in love, then it is a plain inconsistence to suppose that virtue primarily consists in any love to its object for its beauty, either in a love of complacence, which is delight in a being for his beauty, or in a love of benevolence, that has the beauty of its object for its foundation. For that would be to suppose that the beauty of intelligent beings primarily consists in love to beauty, or that their virtue, first of all, consists in their love to virtue, which is an inconsistence and going in a circle, because it makes virtue or beauty of mind the foundation or first motive of that love wherein virtue originally consists, 
or wherein the very first virtue consists, where it supposes the first virtue to be the consequence and effect of virtue, so that virtue is originally the foundation and exciting cause of the very beginning or first being of virtue, which makes the first virtue both the ground and the consequence, both cause and effect of itself. Doubtless, virtue primarily consists in something else besides any effect or consequence of virtue. If virtue consists primarily in love to virtue, then virtue, the thing loved, is the love of virtue, so that virtue must consist in the love of the love of virtue. And if it be inquired what that virtue is, which virtue consists in the love of the love of, it must be answered, is the love of virtue, so that there must be the love of the love of the love of virtue, and so on, in infinitum. For there is no end of going back in a circle. We never come to any... He does. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like he's going around in circles. Uh, I'm not sure what he's getting at. Seems to be... Uh, it, it's a little circular logic here that I don't quite follow. So that there must be the love of the love of the love of virtue, and so on in... in what does that mean, the love of the love of the love of virtue? We never come to any beginning or foundation, for tis without beginning and hangs on nothing. Therefore, if the essence of virtue or beauty of mind lies in love, or a disposition to love, it must primarily consist in something different, both from complacence, which is a delight in beauty, and also from any benevolence that has the beauty of its object for its foundation. Because it is absurd to say that virtue is primarily and first of all the consequence of itself, for this makes virtue primarily prior to itself. Nor can virtue primarily consist in gratitude, or one being's benevolence to another for his benevolence to him, because this implies the same inconsistence, for it supposes a benevolence prior to gratitude that is the cause of gratitude. Therefore, the first benevolence, or that benevolence which has no. He does. And prior to it, can't be gratitude. Therefore, there is room left for no other conclusion than that the primary object of virtuous love is being simply considered, or that true virtue primarily consists not in love to any particular beings because of their virtue or beauty, nor in gratitude because they love us, but in a propensity and union of heart to being simply considered, exciting absolute benevolence, if I may so call it, to being in general. I say true virtue primarily consists in this. For I am far from asserting that there is no true virtue in any other love than this absolute benevolence. But I would express what appears to me to be the truth on this subject in the following particulars. The first object of a virtuous benevolence is being simply considered. And if being simply considered be its object, then being in general is its object. And the thing it has an ultimate propensity to is the highest good of being in general. And it will seek the good of every individual being unless it be conceived as not consistent with the highest good of being in general, in which case the good of a particular being, or some beings, may be given up for the sake of the highest good of being in general, and particularly if there be any being that is looked upon as statedly and irreclaimably opposite, and an enemy to being in general, then consent and adherence to being in general will induce the truly virtuous heart to forsake that being and to oppose it. And further, if being simply considered be the... Hey, does. Yeah, I guess what he's doing is he's making a distinction between virtue as a benevolence toward an individual and and, uh, and virtue with regard to being in general, not to a specific being. Hey, does? No. Hey, see, my biggest thing is here. Yeah, well, it's between a special relationship. 
a special recipient or devoted to a, just a mode of being, a virtuous mode of being. Uh, it doesn't. No. It was better. Well, he's just making that, that distinction. First object of a truly virtuous benevolence, since other things being equal, so far as such a being is exhibited to our faculties or set in our view, will have the greatest share of the propensity and benevolent affection of the heart. I say other things being equal, especially because there is a secondary object of virtuous benevolence that I shall take notice of presently, which is one thing that must be considered as the ground or motive to a purely virtuous benevolence. Pure benevolence in its first exercise is nothing else but beings uniting consent or propensity to being, appearing true and pure by its extending to being in general and inclining to the general highest good and to each being whose welfare is consistent with the highest general good in proportion to the degree of existence, understand other things being equal. The second object of a virtuous propensity of heart is benevolent being. A secondary ground of pure benevolence is virtuous benevolence itself in its object. When anyone under the influence of general benevolence sees another being possessed of the like general benevolence, this attaches his heart to him and draws forth greater love to him than merely his having existence. Because so far as the being beloved has love to being in general, so far his own being is, as it were, enlarged, extends to, and in some sort comprehends being in general. And therefore he that is governed by love to being in general must of necessity have complacence in him and the greater degree of benevolence to him, as it were, out of gratitude to him for his love to general existence, that his own heart is extended and united to, and so looks on its interest as its own. Just because his heart is thus united to being in general, and he does, that he looks on a benevolent propensity to being in general, wherever he sees it, as the beauty of the being in whom it is, an excellency that renders him worthy of esteem, complacence, and the greater goodwill. But several things may be noted more particularly concerning the secondary ground of a truly virtuous love. 1. That loving a being on this ground necessarily arises from pure benevolence to being in general and comes to the same thing. For he that has a simple and pure goodwill to general entity or existence must love that temper in others that agrees and conspires with itself. A spirit of consent to being must agree with consent to being. That which truly and sincerely seeks the good of others must approve of and love that which joins with him in seeking the good of others. 2. This which has now been mentioned as a secondary ground of virtuous love is the thing wherein true moral or spiritual beauty primarily consists. Yea, spiritual beauty consists wholly in this and the various qualities and exercises of mind which proceed from it and the external actions which proceed from these internal qualities and exercises. And he does? No, but he just keeps affirming that the, that the benevolence toward a particular one specific individual needs to emerge out of a, a virtuous or benevolence toward being in general. And in these things consists all true virtue, that is, in this love of being, and the qualities and acts which arise from it. 3. As all spiritual beauty lies in these virtuous principles and acts, so tis primarily on this account they are beautiful, that is, that they imply consent and union with being in general. This is the primary and most essential beauty of everything that can justly be called by the name of virtue, or is any moral excellency in the eye of one that has a perfect view of things. I say the primary and most essential beauty, because there is a secondary and inferior sort of beauty, which I shall take notice of afterwards. 4. The spiritual beauty, that is but a secondary ground of a virtuous benevolence, is the ground not only of benevolence but complacence, 
and is the primary ground of the latter, that is, when the complacence is truly virtuous. Love to us in particular, and kindness received, may be a secondary ground, but this is the primary objective foundation of it. 5. It must be noted that the degree of the amiableness or valuableness of true virtue primarily it does. consisting in consent and a benevolent propensity of heart to being in general, in the eyes of one that is influenced by such a spirit, is not in the simple proportion of the degree of benevolent affection seen, but in a proportion compounded of the greatness of the benevolent being, or the degree of being and the degree of benevolence. One that loves being in general will necessarily value goodwill to being in general, wherever he sees it. But if he sees the same benevolence in two beings, he will value it more in two than in one only, because it is a greater thing, more favorable to being in general to have two beings to favor it than only one of them. For there is more being that favors being, both together having more being than one alone. So, if one being be as great as two, has as much existence as both together, and has the same degree of general benevolence, it is more favorable to being in general than if there were general benevolence in a being that had but half that share of existence. As a large quantity of gold with the same degree of preciousness, that is, with the same excellent quality of matter, is more valuable than a small quantity of the same metal. 6. It is impossible that anyone should truly relish this beauty. It does existing in general benevolence, who has not that temper himself. I have observed that if any being is possessed of such a temper, he will unavoidably be pleased with the same temper in another. And it may in like manner be demonstrated that tis such a spirit and nothing else which will relish such a spirit. For if a being destitute of benevolence should love benevolence to being in general, it would prize and seek that which it had no value for. Because to love an inclination to the good of being in general would imply a loving and prizing the good of being in general. For how should one love and value a disposition to a thing, or a tendency to promote a thing, and for that very reason, because it tends to promote it, when the thing itself is what he is regardless of, and has no value for, no desires to have promoted. End of chapter one, recording by expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Concerning the nature of true virtue. But yeah, let's see if we can get anything out of it. That's why we're listening to it. We'll see. I said, are you? Yep. Are you? Okay. Well, I'm not sure. I've, the only thing is uh, that which I've mentioned so far. Jonathan Edwards. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Chapter 2. Showing how that love wherein true virtue consists respects the divine being and created being. From what has been said, it is evident that true virtue must chiefly consist in love to God, the being of beings, infinitely the greatest and best of beings. This appears... Hey, does it? No. You think that's true? Well, I'm not sure yet what he's saying. Whether we consider the primary or secondary ground of virtuous love. It was observed that the first objective ground of that love, wherein true virtue consists, is being, simply considered, and as a necessary consequence of this, that being who has the most of being, or the greatest share of universal existence, has proportionably the greatest share of virtuous benevolence, so far as such a being is exhibited to the faculties of our minds, other things being equal. But God has infinitely the greatest share of existence, or is infinitely the greatest being. So that all other being, even that of all created things whatsoever throughout the whole universe, 
is as nothing in comparison of the divine being. And if we consider the secondary ground of love, that is beauty or moral excellency, the same thing will appear. For as God is infinitely the greatest being, so he is allowed to be infinitely the most beautiful and excellent. And all the beauty to be found throughout the whole creation is but the reflection of the diffused beams of that being who hath an infinite fullness of brightness and glory. God's beauty is infinitely more valuable than that of all other beings upon both those accounts mentioned. That is the degree of his virtue and the greatness of the being possessed of this virtue. And God has sufficiently exhibited himself in his being, his infinite greatness and excellency, and has given us faculties whereby we are capable of plainly discovering immense superiority to all other beings in these respects. Therefore, he that has true virtue, consisting in benevolence to being in general, and in that complacence in virtue or moral beauty, and benevolence to virtuous being, must necessarily have a supreme love to God, both of benevolence and complacence. And all true virtue must radically and essentially, and as it were summarily, consist in this. Because... It does? God is not only infinitely greater and more excellent than all other beings, but he is the head of the universal system of existence the foundation and fountain of all being and all beauty, from whom all is perfectly derived, and on whom all is most absolutely and perfectly dependent, of whom and through whom and to whom is all being and all perfection, and whose being and beauty is, as it were, the sum and comprehension of all existence and excellence, much more than the sun is the fountain and summary comprehension of all the light and brightness of the day. If it should be objected that virtue consists primarily in benevolence, but that our fellow creatures and not God seem to be the most proper objects of our benevolence, inasmuch as our goodness extendeth not to God, and we cannot be profitable to him. To this I answer, 1. A benevolent propensity of heart is exercised, not only in seeking to promote the happiness of the being towards whom it is exercised, but also in rejoicing in his happiness. Even as gratitude for benefits received will not only excite endeavors to requite the kind... There you go. Yeah, so the, the satisfaction or the, yeah, the satisfaction of benevolence toward an individual is, comes in two forms. One is just the, the, the satisfaction of doing it, and the other is the satisfaction for seeing the satisfaction in the other. I guess that's what he's saying. Yeah, does it? No. It's to be received by equally benefiting our benefactor. But also, if he be above any need of us, or we have nothing to bestow, and are unable to repay his kindness, it will dispose us to rejoice in his prosperity. Two, though we are not able to give anything to God, which we have of our own, independently, yet we may be the instruments of promoting his glory, in which he takes a true and proper delight. As was shown at large in the former treatise, On God's End in Creating the World, Chapter 1, Section 4. Whither I must refer the reader for a more full answer to this objection. Whatever influence such an objection may seem to have on the minds of some, yet is there any that owns the being of a God who will deny that any love or benevolent affection is due to God and proper to be exercised towards him? If no benevolence is to be exercised towards God because we cannot profit him, then for the same reason neither is gratitude to be exercised towards him for his benefits to us because we cannot requite him. But where is the man who believes a God and a providence that will say this? There seems to be an inconsistency. Hey, that since the only thing of any benefit we can give to others uh, doesn't come from us the benefit doesn't come from us but from our but from God as he would say 
to likewise to be grateful to God is 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 pointless because it's always there. You don't need to be. I I, I don't know. <laughs> it's a little confusing. Yeah. Distance and some writers on morality in this respect that they don't wholly exclude a regard to the deity out of their schemes of morality, but yet mention it so slightly that they leave me room and reason to suspect they esteem it a less important and a subordinate part of true morality, and insist on benevolence to the created system in such a manner as would naturally lead one to suppose they look upon that as by far the most important and essential thing in their scheme. But why should this be? If true virtue consists partly in a respect to God, then doubtless it consists chiefly in it. If true morality requires that we should have some regard, some benevolent affection to our Creator, as well as to His creatures, then doubtless it requires the first regard to be paid to Him, and that He be every way the supreme object of our benevolence. If His being above our reach, and beyond all capacity of being profited by us, don't hinder, but that nevertheless He is the proper object of our love, then it don't hinder that He should be loved according to His dignity, or according to the degree in which He has those things, wherein worthiness of regard consists. So far as we are capable of it but this worthiness none will deny consists in these two things greatness and moral goodness and those that own a god don't deny that he infinitely exceeds all other beings in these if the deity is to be looked upon as within that system of beings which properly terminates our benevolence or belonging to that whole certainly he is to be regarded as the head of the system and the chief part of it if it be proper to call him a part who is infinitely more than all the rest and in comparison of whom and without whom all the rest are nothing, either as to beauty or existence. And therefore, certainly, unless we will be atheists, we must allow... Hey, Duff? No. It's getting a little convoluted. ...true virtue does primarily and most essentially consist in a supreme love to God, and that where this is wanting, there can be no true virtue. But this being a matter of the highest importance, I shall say something further to make it plain that love to God is most essential to true virtue and that no benevolence whatsoever to other beings can be of the nature of true virtue without it. And therefore let it be supposed that some beings, by natural instinct or by some other means, have a determination of mind to union and benevolence to a particular person or private system, which is but a small part of the universal system of being, and that this disposition or determination of mind is independent on or not subordinate to benevolence to being in general. Such a determination, disposition, or affection of mind is not of the nature of true virtue. This is allowed by all with regard to self-love, in which goodwill is confined to one single person only. And there are the same reasons why any other private affection or goodwill, though extending to a society of persons independent of and unsubordinate to benevolence to the universality, should not be esteemed truly virtuous. For, notwithstanding it extends to a number of persons, which taken together are more than a single person, yet the whole falls infinitely short of the universality of existence. And it put... Hey, Duff? No, again, he just seems to be referring to the distinction between benevolence toward all reality in general as distinct from benevolence toward a specific individual. Yeah. In the scales He's saying the latter, the latter emerges out of the former. However, it may not be amiss more particularly to consider the reasons why private affections or goodwill limited to a particular circle of beings falling infinitely short of the whole existence. I'll say it's kind of like putting down humanism where people be like, yeah, just be kind to your fellow man. But he's saying, 
and, and that's all you need to do. But he's saying no. For you got to put God first. Like Eddie Bell said. Yes. Yeah, I think that's that's the major theme that I've heard throughout this entire presentation. So what do you think? What do you think of that? Well, yeah, I, I think that's true. It's a mode of being rather than a particular strategy to produce a particular goal or outcome. Mm. And it doesn't? No. And not dependent upon it, nor subordinate to general benevolence, cannot be of the nature of true virtue. One, such a private affection, detached from general benevolence and independent on it, as the case may be, will be against general benevolence or of a contrary tendency, and will set a person against general existence and make him an enemy to it. As it is with selfishness, or when a man is governed by a regard to his own private interest, independent of regard to the public good, such a temper exposes a man to act the part of an enemy to the public. As in every case wherein his private interest seems to clash with the public, or in all those cases wherein such things are presented to his view that suit his personal appetites or private inclinations, but are inconsistent with the good of the public, on which account a selfish, contracted, narrow spirit is generally abhorred and is esteemed base and sordid. If a man's affection... Hey, does? No. So I would say, like, but, but then the question would be, you know, when he, when he talks about God, though, is he talking about the flow? Like, you, you would say that if he was talking about a personal God, then that's still dualistic, right? Yeah. But, you know, but at the same time, like, I like the idea that it's both personal and not personal. Any thoughts on that? Well, see, the, the personal emerges out of the transpersonal. Yeah, because because the reason why I because yeah because if it's it, because people see yeah they say it becomes impersonal if it's just transpersonal they become impersonal and people are like oh yeah everything's just energy but then they're not really and then and then they don't really show love to other people and stuff. Maybe does that. Yeah. And, and 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 they're still assholes, you know. Like so 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 it's like so what you know, everything's energy you're still an asshole you still don't get it you know any thoughts. Yeah, certainly possible. Um, but then also like, uh, oh yeah, it's not just possible; it happens all the time. But uh, but then uh, but then uh, at the same time, like yeah, but in an idea of like a personal God, well, I like that idea because you know, like even the humanist idea, it's like the Christian atheist where they say like, okay, well, what the what Jesus brought to realization is that man is God. You know, the way that you treat man, that's, you know, that is God. And, and there's, like, some sort of truth to that. So, and then, like, in that way, the humanists are right. You know, just, it's how you treat your fellow man and stuff. Like, any thoughts? Yeah. Yep, yeah, that's good. But at the same time, you know, It, you know the, the quadrant model shows that's lacking. Really, really, the way I see it is the quadrant is God. The quadrant, if you really study it, you really got to like get into this stuff. It's it's the, there's a divine supernatural element of reality, some higher magical force is going on. You know, any thoughts per permeating all of you? Know, any thoughts? Yeah. No. Takes in half a dozen more, and his regards extend so far beyond his own single person as to take in his children and family. Or if it reaches further still to a larger circle, but falls infinitely short of the universal system and is exclusive of being in general, his private affection exposes him to the same thing. 
videlicet to pursue the interests of his particular object in opposition to general existence, which is certainly contrary to the tendency of true virtue, yea, directly contrary to the main and most essential thing in its nature, the thing on account of which chiefly its nature and tendency is good. For the chief and most essential good that is in virtue is its favoring being in general. Now certainly, if private affection to a limited system had in itself the essential nature of virtue, it would be impossible that it should in any circumstance whatsoever have a tendency and inclination directly contrary to that wherein the essence of virtue chiefly consists. 2. Private affection, if not subordinate in general affection, is not only liable, as the case may be, to issue in enmity to being in general, but has a tendency to it, as the case certainly is and must necessarily be. For he that is influenced by private affection, not subordinate to regard to being in general, sets up its particular or limited object above being in general, and this most naturally tends to enmity against the latter, which is by right the great supreme ruling and absolutely sovereign object of our regard. Even as the setting up another prince as supreme in any kingdom, distinct from the lawful sovereign, naturally tends to enmity against the lawful sovereign. Wherever it is sufficiently published that the supreme, infinite, and all comprehend... Hey, Doc. Yes, he's implying that private affection is is aimed toward producing a particular result, whereas affection in general is just affection, or love, or virtue. Yeah, and then when it's directed toward an individual, it's not in order to produce a particular result, but it's just a way of being with that individual. No. Being being requires a supreme regard to himself and insists upon it that our respect to him should universally rule in our hearts and every other affection be subordinate to it, and this under the pain of his displeasure, as we must suppose it is in the world of intelligent creatures, if God maintains a moral kingdom in the world, then a consciousness of our having chosen and set up another prince to rule over us and subjected our hearts to him, and continuing in such an act, must unavoidably excite enmity and fix us in a stated opposition to the supreme being. This demonstrates that affection to a private society or system, independent on general benevolence, cannot be of the nature of true virtue. For this would be absurd, that it has the nature and essence of true virtue, and yet at the same time has a tendency opposite to true virtue. 3. Not only would affection to a private system, unsubordinate to regard to being in general, have a tendency to opposition to the supreme object of virtuous affection as its effect and consequence, but would become itself in opposition to that object. Considered by itself in its nature, detached from its effects, it is an instance of great opposition to the rightful supreme object of our respect. For it exalts its private object above the other great and infinite object, and sets that up as supreme in opposition to this. It puts down being in general, which is infinitely superior in itself and infinitely more important, in an inferior place. It does? No. So when I look at it, you know, being is the quadrant. And, you know, any little being is just an aspect of the quadrant being, you know, it does. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yea, subjects the supreme general object to this private, infinitely inferior object which is to treat it with great contempt and truly to act in opposition to it, and to act in opposition to the true order of things and in opposition to that which is infinitely the supreme interest, making this supreme and infinitely important interest as far as in us lies to be subject to and dependent on an interest infinitely inferior. 
This is to act against it, and to act the part of an enemy to it. He that takes a subject and exalts him above his prince, sets him as supreme instead of the prince, and treats his prince wholly as a subject, therein acts the part of an enemy to his prince. From these things, I think, it is manifest that no affection limited to any private system, not dependent on, nor subordinate to being in general, can be of the nature of true virtue. And this, whatever the private system be, let it be more or less extensive, consisting of a greater or smaller number of individuals, so long as it contains an infinitely little part of universal existence, and so bears no proportion to the great all-comprehending system. And consequently, that no... Hey, Doc. ...affection whatsoever to any creature, or any system of created beings, which is not dependent on, nor subordinate to, a propensity... See, like, I understand what you're saying, like, okay, no anger, not not an angry God, because, you know, that's emotion and stuff, and, and that gets you in the ego body, you know, it gets you in the self to be angry and stuff. But at the same time, I like the idea that God can be, is angry and not angry. Any thoughts? Or he can be angry? No, that, that doesn't make sense to me, but then, that, that's fine. Yeah, because because you don't know it, it's possible that there is a personal god that gets angry and can and you don't know that that's true i don't know that i don't and, and it's possible it's imagine. possible that there is and there isn't at the same time kind of like there's both a wave and a particle any thoughts well again i can't imagine that as a possibility but it certainly could be union of the heart to God, the supreme and infinite being, can be of the nature of true virtue. From hence also it is evident that the divine virtue, or the virtue of the divine mind, must consist primarily in love to himself, or in the mutual love and friendship which subsists eternally and necessarily between the several persons in the Godhead, or that infinitely strong propensity there is in these divine persons one to another. There is no need of multiplying words to prove that it must be thus on a supposition that virtue in its most essential nature consists in benevolent affection or propensity of heart towards being... And especially especially if you do want to look at it in the humanist way or the Christian atheist way where they say, okay, Jesus on the cross, that represents us killing God so that we recognize or that you know man is God or whatever. Well, what is man? Man gets angry. But you might say, well, that's not real anger. It's just energy, you know, patterns, you know, hormones and stuff. And we call it anger because they create different formations and stuff. And that's not real anger. Okay, whatever. But at the same time, we don't know if that's the case. We don't know if really the, what, what's, what's most elemental is the anger and the, and the, per, and the percepts and the physical is just, you know, an aspect of like really the, the physical or even energy reality might not even be real. Maybe it's just all like a dream, like consciousness, like any thoughts. So, I mean, if you want to look at it in the humanist perspective, like does God get angry? If we look at man as God or whatever. If, you know, that's what the Christians, atheists want to say about, you know, what, that's what the message of the Bible and stuff. Or that's what Farbach, Farbach or whatever his name was, was saying. You know, yeah, man gets angry. And man is a, God's a projection of man, but, you know, as above, so below. You know, and, and we don't want to deny these aspects of reality, such as anger. And sure, sure, that comes from the identity and the ego and stuff. You know, you could transcend that. and But at the same time... It exists, it doesn't exist at the same time. I don't know, any thoughts? No. I, mean, I kind of like, you know, I like Smolin's idea of a holographic idea. The universe is a holographic quadrant. You know, the quadrant hologram. Like, any thoughts? 
Could be. Ain't that doesn't? No. And so, flowing out to pleasure of existence and beauty which they are possessed of, it will also follow from the foregoing things that God's goodness and love to created beings is derived from and subordinate to his love to himself. In what manner it is so, I have endeavored in some measure to explain in the preceding discourse of God's end in creating the world. With respect to the manner in which a virtuous love in created beings, one to another, is dependent on and derived from love to God, this will appear by a proper consideration of what has been said, that it is sufficient to render love to any created being virtuous if it arise from the temper of mind wherein consists a disposition to love God supremely. Because it appears from what has been already observed, all that love to particular beings, which is the fruit of a benevolent propensity of heart to being in general, is virtuous love. But as has been remarked, a benevolent propensity of heart to being in general and a temper or disposition to love God supremely are in effect the same thing. Therefore, if love to a created being comes from that temper or propensity of the heart, it is virtuous. However, every particular exercise of love to a creature may not sensibly arise from any exercise of love to God, or an explicit consideration of any similitude, conformity, union, or relation to God in the creature beloved. The most proper evidence of love to a created being, its arising from that temper of mind, wherein consists the supreme propensity of heart to God, seems to be the agreeableness of the kind and degree of our love to God's end in our creation, and in the creation of all things, and the coincidence of the exercises of our love, in their manner, order, and measure, with the manner in which God himself exercises love to the creature, in the creation and government of the world, and the way in which God as the first cause and supreme disposer of all things, has respect to the creature's happiness, in subordination to himself as his own supreme end. For the true virtue of created beings is doubtless their highest excellency, and their true goodness, and that by which they are especially agreeable to the mind of their creator. But the true goodness of a thing, as was observed... Hey, Dad? Because, you know, like, there's a, there's a texture, and there's there's multi-variability and stuff in existence. And yeah, there's a oneness, but there's also a multiplicity, and it's like, any thoughts? That's true. There are individual and unique manifestations of the one, yes. Yeah, it doesn't. In yeah, every, in every symphony, there's, there are yeah. many, many different parts. Or its fitness to answer the design for which it was made. Or, at least, this must be its goodness in the eyes of the workman. Therefore, they are good moral agents whose temper of mind or propensity of heart is agreeable to the end for which God made moral agents. But as has been shown, the last end for which God has made moral agents must be the last end for which God has made all things. It being evident that the moral world is the end of the rest of the world, the inanimate and unintelligent world being made for the rational and moral world as much as a house is prepared for the inhabitant. By these things it appears that a truly virtuous mind, being as it were under the sovereign dominion of love to God, does above all things seek the glory of God, and makes this his supreme, governing, and ultimate end, consisting in the expression of God's perfections in their proper effects, and in the manifestation of God's glory to created understandings, and the communications of the infinite fullness of God to the creature, in the creature's highest esteem of God, love to God, and joy in God, and in the proper exercises and expressions of these. And so far as a virtuous mind exercises true virtue and benevolence to created beings, it chiefly seeks the good of the creature, consisting in its knowledge or view of God's glory and beauty, its union with God and conformity to him, love to him, and joy in him. 
And that temper or disposition of heart, that consent, union, or propensity of mind to being in general, which appears chiefly in such exercises, is virtue, truly so called. Or an Hey, Das? Yeah, you, know, you, you, see, you see that sometimes people who are like very religious and they have like that, that you know, devotion to God. But I also see at the same time sometimes those people are kind of crazy, you know. And and sometimes some of them are like right wingers and, and, and bl victim blamers and stuff. And it's like, how do you tell who's like authentically, you know, intoxicated by God and who's just kind of in a, in a little bit of a chemical imbalance? Any thoughts? Say it's by the track record. And it doesn't. And, and the thing is, I don't want to blame anybody. Like I think I feel like every every aspect of the symphony is important, even the chemical imbalanced aspect. It does. It doesn't. Oh, yeah. That that that, yeah. that 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 note in the symphony is not not there for no reason. It does. I want to really quick check out this this thing right here. Um, tell me, tell me what you think of this, Randy. Have the right to sabotage the company through your constant expressions of dissatisfaction. If you don't have a solution to the problem you are complaining about, it is best to keep. This your is called the the art of war for women. Problem you are complaining about, it is best to keep your mouth shut. But what if I don't agree with the ethics of my company? Quit. You are not obligated to help the unethical excel. Hey, Dust. Yeah. If you don't want to play that, if you don't want to play a rig game, you walk away from the table. To help the unethical excel. But if you continue to accept a paycheck, you are explicitly endorsing the way your company does business. The right decision every time. It's natural to want to be promoted quickly and make more money. But that doesn't mean you should turn your back on your code of ethics. While we can never fully protect ourselves against untimely disasters, we can protect ourselves against our own wrongdoing. Being ethical and in line with Dow is the foundation for any woman's career and the insurance policy that protects us from taking potentially harmful shortcuts. Because there are no shortcuts. For every overnight success, there are years of hard work that go unseen. By cheerfully aligning your objectives with Dow, you will make the... It does. Well, it's not yet clear what she means by long years of preparation. What do you say, Nitas? Well, I don't know. I don't know what she's meaning by that yet. In I don't have any thoughts there for You will make the right decision every time. You may not be an overnight success, but when you make it to the top, you will be able to look back on your actions with pride. 1.2 Tien, timing, from universal to personal timing. The sun provides short and long days, and the moon has waxing and waning cycles. There are two kinds of timing. One is personal timing, control over whether you make a move or decision or not. I will discuss this concept later in the book. The other is universal timing, which occurs when all the forces of nature are flowing in one direction. Neither you nor I can manipulate it, but we certainly can take advantage of it. Being in sync with universal timing is like running with the wind at your back. It gives you the advantage of momentum, and momentum gives power. When you are aligned with an idea whose time has come, you are unstoppable. The good news is, 
the for just a second. What's going on? What happened? Oh, I just, uh, I get, just got interrupted. All right. The good news is, the farther women progress into this new millennium, the more powerful we will become. Where we were, and where we are. History is written by the victors. And there is no doubt that in the war between men and women, it has been men, up until now, who have been victorious. That's why women have gotten such short shrift in world history. But today, after more than 5,000 years of inequality, we are finally moving toward equality between men and women. So it is... Hey, guys. Yeah, that's true. ...between men and women. So it is not surprising that the accomplishments of women, both past and present, are getting more attention. It is the way of Tao. As Lao Tzu put it, the universe carrying yin and yang in her bosom infuses both forces with equal energy. Thus, harmony is created. Hey, Thus? <clears throat> no? You're making a lot of noise. What's going on? Oh, I'm just arranging some stuff. Are you listening now, or? Yeah. Thus, harmony is created. Sun Tzu understood this as well. Heaven is signified by yin and yang. Manifested as summer and winter, and the changing of the four seasons. With the beginning of the new millennium, a new era is coming to the fore. We are truly moving away from history toward herstory. 1.3 D. Resources. Hey, does it? I mean, I mean, with that though, it could become like it could, it could be ingraining the false notion of man and woman a little bit. But at the same time, you know, women have been degraded for so long. For her to have a little bit of woman pride is, is beneficial, right? And, and like, okay, but yeah, let's move to her story and let's hear her side of the story because she never was able to tell it. But at the same time, you want to move beyond history and her story to the story, right? Right. See, that's one of the, one of the phenomenal uh, – it's a phenomena that has occurred. Men top dogging women. Yeah. But you know, but you see the people who the, the conservatives say, yeah, because women wanna be top dogged. Women like the dominant man who who, you know, who top dogs her and, and, and screws the crap out of her, you know, from behind, you know, and, and pulls her hair and chokes her, you know, any thoughts. Yes, some women do. Yeah, because because you know that that maintains the status quo, and some women are conservative, and they want to maintain the status quo and the idea that the woman is inferior, right? Any thoughts? Yep. Yep. You got it. <clears throat> but then you know, other people say, "Oh no, but there's a biological reason for that. It's because women biologically are, have proclivities toward that because throughout history, you know, they they've adapted to that mode of being, and also, you know, any thoughts of that? That's also true. That's a causative factor. Yeah, and, but people will say the same thing about black people too. They'll be like, yeah, well, black people ad adapted to being slaves 
you know, the ones in America and stuff. So they're like natural slaves now, you know, for 400 years, uh, the, the, the ones who were bred, you know, and it may be epigenetic from any thoughts. certainly affected by the water in which they've their boats have been floating for generations yeah yeah so there could be a biological component but at the same time you don't have to settle for that huh exactly d resources turn your liabilities into assets the earth contains far and near danger and ease open ground and narrow passes these will determine your chance of life or death. While the word D literally means earth, Sun Tzu uses the concept more broadly to include many kinds of terrain, including flat land and mountains, rivers and marshes. On the battlefield, a general must take into account not only his or her opponent, but also the terrain on which the battle will be fought. Invariably, the battleground will present both advantages and disadvantages. On the positive side, there may be caves to hide in and narrow mountain passes that set the stage for a perfect ambush, but it is also possible that the general will be confronted with a river immediately ahead and mountains behind, making it difficult to lead troops forward. No general can alter the surrounding terrain, no matter how much it stands in the way of victory, but he or she can understand it and learn how to make the best of that which is beyond. Troll. It is no different at work. It doesn't matter if your boss, colleagues, employees, or clients love you, or if you work for a boss who takes credit for your work, or a company that rarely promotes from within. You cannot change your company, at least not right away. But you can find a way to use the company's culture to your advantage. The key is knowing yourself, which is precisely what this book will teach you to do. Turning liabilities into assets. Any thoughts? Yeah, well... Well, that's good advice. You you have to accept the fact that there are certain circumstances. There are bad calls in some businesses, and you can't do anything about that. Yeah, but no, you, I don't you like can. that. It's true. I don't. I don't like. At the same time, I don't like that. Yeah. All you can do is work on yourself. Yeah. I don't like those those extreme statements. Yes, you can work on yourself, but to say like, oh, you can't change your company. Yes, you can. You can point out that guy right there is blaming the victim. That guy right there thinks that women are inferior and then you can reach out to to higher powers who can mitigate the situations and be like oh i can't do anything about it i'll just i'll just be like sojourner truth and just uh and just uh walk away you know no you can do something about it and that's a part of the flow is you can recognize when things are appropriate and and yes you can change the environment any thoughts see you're not understanding what i'm saying what, what are you saying? See, rather than reacting to it, you show a better way. You become a Sherpa, not in order to change, not in order to change the system, but it, as a demonstration that there is another way to being. Mm -hmm. And the other person, the system may not respond to that, or it may respond to that. But your purpose for doing it is not to change the the company. The yeah. purpose is to follow a higher order. Yeah, does it? And, and a part of that, and a part of that could be reaching out to a higher power, some some you know they have what they call supervisors in the in the organization, and saying, hey, you know, we have a boss, and the boss, you know, maybe he was beaten when he was a kid, 
maybe he has a you know a dad who's who's an asshole and blames a victim and and maybe you know stuff like that and he himself is caught up in a in that type of thinking it's not his fault you know there's water which he floated his boat bunch of assholes around him and the thing is okay we want to be judgmental because that's but but at the same time like you know we can can we maybe you know look can you can you maybe supervise his boss he you recognize that this isn't a healthy environment and maybe we can get a new boss in here and a supervisor might look at the boss and say you know what i see what you're saying he is making subtle statements about women he is making subtle statements about black people he is making subtle statements about so and so this isn't a very healthy environment maybe we should get a new boss you know that might be a part of the flow too any thoughts possible or maybe not 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 fire that boss maybe talk to that boss and show him the higher way say hey show him hey i think that you're blaming the victim and and you can hear read ryan merkel's book based on true story and it explains the phenomena that you're undergoing right now that you are in that and, and ryan merkel himself was in that phase because he got confused because people around him confused him you know but now read this and, and and that will expose you to a higher way of seeing things and Now we don't even need it. You don't need to be fired now. You can be transformed and, and a, That's a big aspect reading books environment Stuff like that can transform people any thoughts yeah. Hey, that's enough for now All right, let's just finish this one this one part right here Ready Ready go Are you ready? Grab it. Of course, wait. Turning liabilities into assets. The first and most important bit of terrain to take into account exists inside your head. If you do not take time to truly think about your strengths and weaknesses, you cannot begin to deal effectively with the external terrain you face. How well you deal with your colleagues, bosses, employees, and clients, and your career in general, depends on how well you utilize your resources both your positive and negative attributes. As Sun Tzu said, D will determine whether you will live or die. On the battlefield, a river is neither positive or negative. It all depends on how the general makes use of it in the course of a battle. It is the same with your personal characteristics. No attribute is purely positive or negative. It all depends on what you do with the hand you have been dealt. Everyone's life is filled with a certain number of liabilities, yet these so-called disadvantages can be turned into secret weapons for winning. Let's talk about how that can come about. Turning your liabilities into assets. One, okay, no... Okay, that's enough. Oh, yeah, does it? Yeah, that's big.